Little kids learning to play sports often have uh, sports heroes that they revere on playgrounds across the world. Children try to do what they've seen their heroes do, except they try without the same strength and speed and skill of their heroes. Sports stars are exceptional. Most kids don't have the same raw abilities. Sports stars have rare God-given abilities and have trained and and they've reached peak performance. Most kids looking up to them will never be quite like them. We watch kids play sports and we smile and maybe chuckle to ourselves, but if we're honest, they're really not that good. Um, Why? Because they're kids. They're kids, undeveloped, weak, slow, inexperienced, immature, making a lot of mistakes, kids who need much more attention and coaching and training. But here's the thing. Give those kids time to grow up. Feed them. Give them attention, good coaching and experience. And if they're committed, though they, they probably will never reach the, uh, the rival, the dominance of a Michael Jordan or a Tom Brady or a Wayne Gretzky, uh, they, in the end, they will play much more like their sports heroes than when they were little kids. The more they learn, the more they grow and play, the more they shed their awkwardness and come to resemble their sports heroes, and then they turn 40. And, uh, and the downward degeneration begins as they perform less and less like their heroes and less and less like they did in their 20s and 30s. Christ is our true hero. We're not like him. And yet, because we belong to him, he's making us more and more like him. Well, we call it sanctification. It's a lengthy pro- process. But make no mistake, Christ redeems his people to make them more and more like himself. Think about it. Why did Christ purchase you with his precious blood? Certainly because he loves you. Also because in taking you to be his own, he is entirely committed to transforming you into his image. So you too can glorify and enjoy God like him. Like he does. The Apostle Paul wrote about believers becoming partakers of the divine nature. Now that doesn't mean that we are redeemed to become divine. But we do share in Christ's anointing. We possess the Holy Spirit of Christ who is actively conforming us to the likeness of Christ. And the image of God in us, the image that in this life is so obscured by sin, is being powerfully renewed by the Spirit in true righteousness. Your hope in life and in death is that because you belong to Christ, God is restoring his image in you so that you render yourself entirely to him. So my point today is straightforward. Because you belong body and soul to Christ, you are being transformed into the image of Christ, so joyfully render yourself to God. See, you owe yourself to God because God's image is on you. 
You give yourself to God because Christ bought you and is restoring God's image in you. This restoration, it happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. As we consider Jesus' ongoing dialogue with these uh, Jewish leaders, I'd like to draw your attention to three simple things and how they relate to you and me. Number one, the opposition of Jesus and our inclination to evil. Number two, the wisdom of Jesus and our need of grace. And three, the image of Jesus and our hope of sanctification. Sounds like guilt, grace, gratitude. Our comfort in life and death is that Christ has purchased us with his precious blood. We belong to him, and he's making us like himself. That gospel compels us then to joyfully render ourselves to God. That's where we're headed. Number one, the opposition of Jesus and our inclination to evil. If you look at Matthew 23, You'll notice that Jesus grieves the self-righteousness and hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees and rails against them with sobering judgment. Six times Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. One time he says, Woe to you, blind guides. It's, It's like Jesus was hitting the up arrow, turning up the heat on the thermostat in Matthew 22 and 23, aggressively raising the temperature of the Jewish leaders around him until their anger exploded in the scorcher of the cross. "'Twas days before the cross, and they were trying to entangle and destroy Jesus." Last week, Jesus condemned the Jewish leaders through the parable of the wedding feast. Today, we listen in on this fascinating conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees and Herodians. After the parable, the violent parable of the wedding feast, verse 15 says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They gathered and they schemed to figure out some way to ensnare, to trap Jesus in what he said. They they were looking for their gotcha moment where they had him in their hands. And, And it was all such foolishness for what is the wisdom of men up against the wisdom of God. Sometimes you have to wonder why people are so mean, why they're so malicious Well, I think their hostility was fueled by envy, fear, hypocrisy, self-preservation, and ultimately, couldn't we say self-righteousness? Self-righteousness. Unmoved by his wonderful wisdom and works, they foolishly questioned Jesus at every turn. I want you to think for a moment about the Nazis. How does a group of people become so brutal? How does that happen? The Nazis suppressed truth, reason, virtue to promote, protect, and preserve their own ideologies and their supremacy. Isn't that true? Self-promotion, protection, preservation are all wicked but very persuasive desires. Isn't it true that the opposition of Jesus that we see throughout the Gospels is always self-righteous 
and self-interested opposition. Now, here's how they went after Jesus, verse 16. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Wait a second. What's going on with that? What are they doing? The Pharisees sent their disciples along with the Herodians, and that's amazing. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they were not good buddies, folks. Not close. They were theological and political rivals. To put it simply, the Pharisees were anti-Roman and anti-Herod, and the Herodians were pro-Roman and pro-Herod. And these political enemies were now collaborating to oppose and destroy Jesus. Here's what they said. Verse 16 continues. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And so to, to bring back an expression from the 1980s, gag me with a spoon. Do you remember that? Gag me with a spoon. Their flattery was repulsive. That's disgusting. Now, they were right. Jesus is truthful. Jesus does teach the way of God truthfully. And even more, Jesus is the truth and the way of God in a human being, in human flesh. Jesus doesn't care about anybody's opinion. He's not partial. He's not a respecter of persons. And Jesus doesn't get anxious when people don't like him because he only cares about God's opinion and God's righteous judgments. So what the Pharisees and Herodians said of Jesus is actually exactly right. However, their motive in saying it was duplicitous and malicious. If they believed what they had said about Jesus, then they would have believed and followed Jesus. They asked, verse 17, tell us then, what you think, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that was a trap, and that was spiteful political maneuvering. Sometimes when you listen to, maybe it's best not to listen, but sometimes when you listen to political interviews or debates, the interviewers ask loaded questions. Loaded questions. Loaded questions trap people. Uh, so, so that whatever answer the person gives, it serves the agenda of the person asking the question. Okay, for example, if I ask you the question, have you stopped stealing toys from your neighbor's kids? <laughs> now, what are you going to say? If you say yes, you're admitting to having stolen kids from your, or stolen kids, that's terrible. That's really bad. Stole, don't do that. Man. Toys, toys from your neighbor's kids. And if you answer no, okay, well, then you're admitting to continuing to steal toys from your neighbor's kids. You can't win with the question in the way that it's being asked. They asked Jesus a loaded question. So let's try to understand it. They asked Jesus whether it was appropriate to pay the Roman poll tax. In Luke 20, the word is pharos or tribute, uh, referring to a tax paid from a subservient king or nation to a superior king or nation who conquered them. Essentially, the poll tax put, put uh, uh, money from the people into the pockets of the oppressors, into the Roman, uh, into Roman hands, Caesar's hands, without really any benefit 
for the people. So this is not like a tax paid for roads, having nice roads or having a strong military, not the same thing. Every time the Jews paid the tax, it reminded them of something, of their national inferiority and subservience to Rome. Now understand the trap. If Jesus answered yes, he would be perceived as disloyal to national Israel by siding with Rome and thus further offend the Pharisees and then lose favor with the Jewish people who hated being subjected to Rome and oppressed by Rome. I read that some Jews believe that paying any tax to pagan rulers contradicted God's lordship over his people. Okay, and if Jesus answered no, they'd bring insurrection charges against Jesus to Roman authorities. This man is dangerous, see? He's he's leading a revolt against Rome. You can't have that, can you? Stop him. I mean, that's the idea. They wanted him to give any slight occasion for his own demise. And as always, folks, Jesus handled the situation with poise and unrivaled wisdom. Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He knew their hearts. Hatred and hypocrisy. Luke 20, 20 sheds more light on this. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Right there you have it. And Jesus wasn't surprised by this. It was all God's decree. Matthew 16, 21 tells us that Jesus prophesied that he must go to Jerusalem. Do you remember this? Go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. God's sovereign plan of redemption was unfolding in the events that we're studying. Jesus knew their malicious hearts and he called them out. He said, quite frankly, why put me to the test? You hypocrites. Now that's not mean, folks. That's true. That's true. That's spot on. And it was another opportunity for them to humble themselves and to repent. Now, I was only ever in one musical in my life. Uh, It was in college at Grove City College, my senior year. And I got the part somehow, because my audition was awful, uh, got the the part of Paul the Valet in uh, Kiss Me Kate. Now, my name's not Paul, and I am not a valet. But I played the role of Paul, the valet, on stage. And folks, I messed up in front of hundreds of people. It was the last night. I jumped to the chorus. Nobody else did. It was awful. I felt terrible. So theater's not my calling. The Greek word, hypocrites, hypocrite, refers to an actor, to someone playing a part, a stage player. The Pharisees sent their disciples. Maybe Jesus would think that they were actually sincere. Maybe they were young guys and interested in learning. No, they were simply acting the parts. Underneath their costumes was malice. And you know, folks, hypocrisy also tempts us. Are we not prone to be religious for reasons other than knowing and communing with God? Insincerity or religious masks, or facades, are actually opposition to Christ. 
For religion can be motivated by many things other than love for God. External religion can look good on the outside, but it can be dead on the inside. We have to realize that what drove the religious leaders to their opposition to Christ resides right there within your heart and my heart. Heidelberg 8 asks a very good question, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? And it answers, yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Folks, we are naturally inclined to evil, to oppose God at every turn of life. And until we recognize this, Jesus will be of absolutely no consequence. He'll be irrelevant and we'll love him very little or perhaps none at all. Those who find Jesus irrelevant always, always, always oppose Jesus. It's when we are regenerated, born again, by the Spirit of God and granted repentance and faith that our malicious opposition of God transforms into loving submission to God. We must be changed to render to God the things that are God's. According to 1 Corinthians 2, the gospel is simply foolishness to us and we don't accept it all until the Spirit of God transforms our hearts to see and to receive and to accept and to believe. And do you know what? Even for us redeemed, even for those who are united to Christ, who have been regenerated, who possess the Holy Spirit of Christ, we still have impulses of opposition to Christ. That's what all sin is. It's opposition to Christ. What is sin but a refusal to submit to God and to be like Christ? And then we're tempted to self-justify, to rationalize our sin, to blame shift, even to save face. If not for the gospel taking root in our hearts, we would not want to image Christ. If not for the Holy Spirit, we would have no power to image Christ. Our comfort and hope, brothers and sisters, is that we belong to Christ, body and soul, and are being graciously transformed into the image of our faithful and loving Christ by his powerful spirit so that we can joyfully render ourselves entirely to God in thankfulness. This transformation, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a process throughout our lives. But be sure of this, it is happening. It is happening for those of us who belong to Christ. Next, we're going to see how wisely Jesus responded to his opposition and then relate that to our need of grace. Number two, the wisdom of Jesus and our need of grace. Jesus' response to their sick questioning and opposition was brilliant. There's even grace in it. Verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. A a denarius was a Roman coin equivalent to a day's wage. It's likely that the coin was a silver denarius with Tiberius Caesar's profile picture on it. He was in power. Around the perimeter of the coin were the words Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the backs, Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. 
The Romans considered Augustus a god and Tiberius the son of a god, and Tiberius's image on the denarius communicated his supremacy, maybe even his divinity. It was certainly political propaganda, and it was also offensive to the Jews. The coin seemed to communicate the message, in Caesar we trust. Well, drawing attention to the coin, Jesus asked, whose, whose likeness an inscription is this and they gave him the obvious answer Caesar's and what Jesus says next I think is the center the apex of the passage Jesus wisely counseled them therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's now friends if I was that wise my sermons would be way shorter but uh, I can't say it as much punch as Jesus said it. There's immense truth in that little statement. Immense truth. So let's try to understand them. Number one, these are subpoints. Number one, render means to pay in return, as in a vassal paying his superior. Pay back or return to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Number two, it's clear here that Jesus wasn't trying to establish any earthly political kingdom. That wasn't his motivation. Christ hadn't come to earth to seize political power and to overthrow Rome, to lead uh, Israel back to national prominence. That's not what was going on. His parables reveal that national theocratic Israel was over. Later, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He came to reconcile his people to God. Three, Jesus seems to advocate two kingdom thinking. We have to think carefully about this, but I think I can make it clear quickly. God is sovereign over all spheres of life. Family, church, state, commerce, education, and so forth. God is sovereign over it all, and yet God's authority is carried out differently in these spheres. Jesus upholds the fifth commandment because God has given authority to earthly rulers. Jesus in Romans 13 teach this and more scriptures. God's people are not anarchists. To the contrary, they honor God by honoring their earthly authorities. See, followers of Jesus are citizens of this world, and they should submit to government authorities for God's glory and the good of society. And yet, even more importantly, they are citizens of the kingdom of Christ, and they must submit to Christ in all things, and they must submit to Christ's authority as it is held in the church. Jesus shows that submitting to government does not conflict with submitting to God. Unless, of course, submitting to the government conflicts or requires uh, breaking God's law. Number four, Jesus implied that Caesar and God are distinct entities. Caesar or government is not God. God is God, and God is sovereign over Caesar. What belongs to the citizenship of this world ought to be given, and yet all things must be given to God. Jesus limited government authority and power while confirming God's absolute authority, power, and sovereignty. And five, and lastly, I think the most striking and significant point is Jesus' use of image. His use of image. 
The coin bore the image of Caesar. Taxes belong to the civil government sphere. They should render to Caesar the physical coinage that bears Caesar's image. But when we hear render to God the things that are God, a question seems to naturally arise, what bears the image of God? If we are to render to Caesar that which bears Caesar's image, what bears the image of God that we ought to render to God? Well, everything belongs to God, even Caesar and his coins. We live in God's world. But I think Jesus' point is deeper than general acknowledgement that everything is God's. I think that's true, but I think the point is more significant and specific than that. What bears the image of God? And don't miss this. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human beings bear the image of God, even Caesar himself. And it's right to say that sin defaces the image of God, but it does not destroy it. Wasn't Jesus saying, render yourselves to the Almighty because you owe tribute to your maker? The, the Pharisees and Herodians wanted to talk about politics and to trap and destroy a human being. So Jesus took them to the heart of their problem. They were not rendering themselves to God and his Christ. He took them to the purpose of their existence. Give payment to Caesar because his image is on the coin, but give all of yourself to God because his image is on you. Were they rendering themselves to God as they plotted to destroy human life which bore the image of God? This was another opportunity for them to repent. In spite of their scheming, Jesus took the conversation exactly where it needed to go. Verse 22 says, when they heard it, they marveled. But it wasn't the amazement of true faith. Luke reported they became silent. No confession, no praise, no glorifying God, just silence. Matthew wrote, they left him and went away. Folks, that's what unbelief does to people. It leads them away from Christ. I think most of you, married couples maybe, have probably marked your food storage containers with, with a Sharpie. You know, the Rubbermaid lid has your last name on it or something like that. You put a mark of your ownership on it that communicates to everyone at the picnic that that is your food container storage and that you want it back. And that if you leave it there, they will know where, where it goes. Dogs do not bear God's image. Cats do not bear God's image, a horse, an ape, or an angel. They don't bear God's image. God created human beings. He made them male and female. We need that message today in his image to communicate that he is our maker and we belong to him. Our rational and moral capacity communicate God and his ownership. How could anyone possibly miss it? Believers and unbelievers alike. In general, in a general sense, every human being belongs to God and must render themselves to God. Every human being bears the image of God, but now differently 
than before the fall. Before the fall, God's image in Adam and Eve, it was radiant and it was unobscured. They were rational and immortal souls in physical bodies. They possessed limited but impeccable knowledge and true righteousness and holiness. God's law was written on their hearts. They truly knew God, loved God, and communed with God. And the moment they sinned, God's image was defaced in humanity, but not entirely lost. Sin corrupted their reason, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Remaining moral beings, they had become depraved in nature. They are now depraved human beings. Their relationship with God was fractured, and their love ran cold. They were not able to glorify God as they once were. They found themselves unable to render themselves to God. This is the power. This is the destruction of sin. It makes human beings unable to render themselves to God. I think Jesus' words to the Pharisees and Herodians were a call to repentance, a recall to faith. Um, Render to God the things that are God's, or as God spoke through the prophets, return to me. Return to me. Was this not another loving plea to be reconciled to God, to return And I believe Jesus' statement reveals our desperate need of grace. We will not render ourselves to God without God's sovereign, redeeming, and relentless grace and spirit. This short statement, it gives us much to think about. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You were created the image of God in you. You were created in God's image and you were created for God and though sin continues to obscure God's image in you, your comfort and hope in life and death is this, that because you belong body and soul to Christ, you are being transformed into the image of Christ. The only fitting response then, brothers and sisters, is to joyfully render yourself to God. You receive grace to then render yourself to God in gratitude. This brings us to the last point, and this point is focused on our redemption and sanctification in Christ. Number three, the image of Jesus and our hope of sanctification. I'll probably get worked up on this point, but dear dear friends, where can you look to see the image of God most vividly. Where do you look? As you look around the world, you see broken marriages and families, domestic and sexual abuse, drug trafficking, pornography, burglary, homicide, embezzlement, slavery, war, hypocrisy, corruption, etc. Where can you look to see the beautiful, glorious, and good image of God? Where do we look? Will we not see God? We will not see God unless we know where to look. Friends, if we are to see the image of God, we must look to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Who is God? What is he like? We cannot look to ourselves to answer that question. We must look to Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul said that Christ is the image of God. 
In Colossians 1.15, Paul wrote of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. Our crucified and risen Lord is God's image for us. Now, to be clear, Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct and inseparable natures, a God nature and a human nature. As the eternal, natural, and exclusively begotten Son of God, Jesus is the one true eternal God. Relating to the Father and the Spirit, the Son is the same in substance, equal in power and glory. As the Athanasian Creed explains, as God, the Son is uncreated, immeasurable, eternal, almighty, Lord, co-eternal, co-equal, and worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. Jesus Christ truly is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature but we must also recognize his human nature he is gloriously and equally God and man while remaining true eternal and immutable God the son took upon himself a true human nature from Mary by the working of the Holy Spirit he is the essence of his mother Born in time, he is the true seed of Abraham and David, and he is like you and me, except without any sin. He has a rational human soul and a human body. In his humanity, we see the image of God as we see his perfectly reasonable and immortal soul, his perfect knowledge, perfect righteousness, and perfect holiness, not only having the law of God written on his heart, but being the very living and breathing fulfillment of the law. He is entirely good, and he shows us what a human being ought to be. If we want to see the image of God, we must not look to ourselves. We must look to the God-man, Jesus Christ. He reveals God to us in stunning glory and beauty and clarity. And if we know the image of God in Christ, we will be able to recognize the restoration of that beautiful image in those who belong to Christ. We see the image of Christ in one another as Christ sanctifies us to be his very image. Though God's image in us, it is defaced by the gruesome graffiti of sin, Jesus Christ is restoring God's beautiful and glorious image in us so that we render our bodies, souls, thoughts, desires, wills, affections, indeed everything to God. As Romans 8.28 says, our comfort and our hope is that God has foreknown us but also that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestination is not an unpleasant doctrine. It is the foundation of our comfort and our hope, for in it, God has secured the restoration of his image in his people. As as 1 Corinthians 15 describes, dear brothers and sisters, we have borne the image of the man of dust, We have borne the image of Adam in our sin, but because of God's relentless grace, it is also true that we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 2 Corinthians relates, Moses would ascend the mountain. He would speak to God face to face. 
And he wore a veil so that when he returned to Israel, so that Israel would not see the Lord's glory fade from his face. See, the old covenant would fade away. The veil, the veil still remains on the Jews who cannot see that the old covenant has passed away. National Israel has passed away. They cannot see because a veil remains on their hearts, a veil that only lifts and is taken away through Christ. It is by turning to the Lord that the veil is removed. And Paul encouraged Christians with these words. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Who is transforming his people into his very image? It is the Lord who is the Spirit. Who is restoring the image of God on redeemed man? The Lord of glory. And in Colossians 3, Paul encouraged his brothers and sisters in Christ with these fantastic words. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As we put off our old selves and put on Christ and our new selves, we are being transformed into the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness because we belong to Christ and because we are loved by him. What is sanctification but our gracious Savior restoring the image of God in us? Have you ever watched a painter? In the earliest stages of the painting, you could say, well, that doesn't look very good. He's not a very good painter. I can't even tell what that is. But if you give the painter time and you keep watching, each stroke of the brush adds color and detail and depth and beauty and richness and eventually his masterpiece is finished with each stroke of your master's redemptive grace and power the image of God is being restored in you the master's work is not done he's still renewing he's still restoring he's still sanctifying he's still making you like the beautiful image of his son God put his image on you and me but that image is defaced right now. But the master is continuing to paint you and me into the image of his beautiful son. We must hear Christ's words, render to God the things that are God's. But we must hear them with the beauty and the power and sufficiency of Christ in view. Look to Christ and you will see the image of God and what you are being sanctified to be. Render yourself to God. Render your thoughts, your desires, your choices, and your actions because, brothers and sisters, you belong to Christ. Render your marriage, your kids, your education, your career, your sexuality, your entertainment, your hobbies, your time, your money, your possessions, your life, your eternity, your everything because you belong to Him, body. And soul. You will never render by grit. You will never render 
by determination. You will render by God's grace and spirit through faith. That's how you render. And every time, this is such a precious point that our church needs to hear and own this. We need each other. Every time you see your brothers and sisters in Christ growing in Christ, worshiping more deeply, showing more love to one another, sacrificing selflessly for Christ, you see a glimmer of the Lord Jesus Christ working and transforming and conforming. What a hope. What an encouragement. Every time that you mortify and every time that you vivify, you shine even more the image of your glorious Christ. You shine and hasn't he told us he who began a good work in you? And what's the tail end of that? He's going to finish the work. Hasn't he promised to finish it so that one day you will image the glory of your Christ with stunning clarity and beauty. The exhortation is clear today. Joyfully render yourself entirely to God. That's law. That's law. That's what you need to do. That's what God's telling you to do. But that law comes alongside of a marvelous gospel that you must hear because you belong body and soul to Christ. You are being transformed into the image of Christ. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, render yourselves entirely to God. 